All right, so Matthew chapter 22. We are uh, not doing the Psalms. Uh, This is my last Sunday here at Remedy, and so I want to uh, preach a sermon from Matthew chapter 22. And as I was thinking about what would be maybe the last thing I would say, I went to Matthew chapter 22, starting at verse 34 down through verse 40, because that particular section is the greatest commandment and the second greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And I was like, if there's anything that's maybe the best thing to say, it's you know, the greatest commandment and the second greatest commandment. And so as I started there, I kind of started working myself out from there and have built out a three-point sermon from there. So we're going to actually start at verse 15, uh, where Jesus talks about um, from Chris's sermon last week, from 41 down to 46, Psalm 110, where he shows that he is the Christ and he is the Messiah. That will be our conclusion. Um, and of course, as you know, I like to have my conclusions point to Jesus. The conclusion will point to Jesus. So that's what we're going to be looking at. Uh, Matthew chapter 22, starting at verse 15. And um, the title, there won't be anything on the screen, but the title of it is this, Three Closing Thoughts from a pastor that loves you deeply. Three closing thoughts from a pastor that loves you deeply, and hopefully it'll lead you into um, a new season. So uh, before we get to that, I want to give you a little bit of a background. So in 2004, I finished seminary, uh, and I went to be a youth minister at TGK Baptist Church from 2004 to 2008. During those four years, right around the middle time, at 2006, the pastor that was there left the church, um, and it was a little bit of a weird leaving. Uh, There was, you know, some controversy or whatever you want to say, uh, and it caused the church to be a little in flux, and people, you know, were kind of taking sides and leaving, uh, and some were staying, and I was the only other minister on staff, and so God allowed me to kind of step in and help the church towards a recovery, uh, starting in, I don't know, February of 2006, and over the course of February 2006 to the late fall, I realized that God was calling me to not just be like a student pastor, uh, a youth guy, the easiest job in the world, but um, to go into pastoral ministry, to be a lead pastor. Didn't know what that meant, um, but for the, maybe the next two or three years, uh, 2006 to 2008 to nine, I figured out that what that would look like. Uh, God was helping me understand it was not, a, not an existing church, but an actual church plant, and I didn't know what a church plant was because I'd never done it before. Uh, but anyway, January the 25th, 2009, by the grace of God, Remedy Church was planted and started here in Rock Hill. We met over at the BCM building on Oakland. We started there. We met there for about nine months, uh, then went downtown for several years. Um, we were there for six or seven years, kind of on our way here, had a little month, few month, I don't know, six month, nine month hiatus at YBA to here as this building was getting uh, prepared and set up. But that's just where we met. Those are just the buildings that we met on Sundays, but that's not who we are because the people, the church, are the church, not where you meet. Uh, the noun church can mean building, but uh, in the New Testament, the noun ecclesia means the people, the called out ones. And so we, the people um, of Remedy, have lived all around York County and have seen God do things in our midst uh, over the last 12 and a half years. We've seen God save people. We've seen people get baptized. We've seen babies get born and do their dedications. Um, we've seen people meet and get married here at Remedy and grow in their marriage. And some of them, uh, the Lord is blessed with children and some maybe will one day. We've seen God's grace all over the place at Remedy Church. Uh, we've even been able to celebrate a five-year uh, anniversary and a 10-year anniversary. And Lord willing, you'll see a 15 and a 20 and a 25-year anniversary 
not for our glory, but all for God's. And so um, I pray for that. I pray that the Lord would do that here at Remedy Church. But here we are um, in the fall, late August of 2021, and um, coming to what would be, I think, an end of a, of a season at Remedy Church. The, uh, the, the guy that the Lord used to start the church and has been here the whole time is leaving me. Uh, and so that season is ending of having uh, the, the founding pastor and it's moving into a new season now. You're going to continue in the next season. And so as you're going into the next to say to the church uh, that you can use as a foundation to continue on in this next season. And so that's what we're looking at here. It's three closing thoughts from a pastor that loves you deeply. And hopefully these thoughts will be useful uh, foundation as you're going into the next season here at Remedy Church. Now, uh, in the context, because we're just parachuting down into Matthew chapter 22 and like, okay, what's going on? Uh, This is likely Wednesday, uh, two days until Jesus is going to have the false trial and be crucified. So we're we're at the very end of his life. And in this particular text we're dropping into, um, the people that disliked him, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the lawyers, all these people are peppering him with questions, trying to make him not know what he's talking about and trying to trap him with particular questions. Now, we know that you can't do that because he's not just Jesus the man, he's Jesus God. And you don't, you don't trap Jesus. It's just does, it's not going to happen. And so uh, here's what we're going to look at. Um, you can see them, they're sectioned off. 15 through 22 is one section. 23 through 33 is one section. And then 34 through 40 is that third section. And those three sections, what we're going to see is three attempts by people that don't like Jesus, uh, groups of people that don't like Jesus to trap him. Those three attempts to trap Jesus, where he sees their question, understands their question, and gives them an answer, and they're just kind of left speechless, he gives them, as they're trying to trap him, three amazing answers to how to live as believers in this kingdom life. You know, kingdom life as in, we're not there yet, but we are, the kingdom's not here, it's not going to come until Jesus comes, but in the meantime, how do we live as citizens of heaven right here on earth? So, three attempts to a trap, and three answers on how to that's wrong thinking. Here's how you actually live. And what I'm going to do is take those three answers on how to live for kingdom life because I think they give three good closing thoughts from a pastor that loves you deeply. I think those three little things he teaches them in kingdom life are things that you can use to build, to continue to build a foundation. So that's what we're looking at. So we'll see the interchanges of each and hopefully you'll be able to see how uh, those things um, point to, I think, three important things that I, I, I want to talk about. So um, in 22, uh, 1 through 14, there's a, an ongoing thing that's been happening. If you look over at the very end of 21, starting at verse 45, the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables and they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were ready to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they were, held him to be a prophet. And then he goes, and Jesus spoke to them in parables again. So he's, he's just handing it to them left and right. They're trying to trap him, not happening. Uh, and we're, we're continuing in that same vein where that, that's happening. So as I said, it's Wednesday. And since it's Wednesday, Jesus knows, okay, uh, two days left until this false trial happens and they're going to arrest me. And the time's coming for him to be crucified and resurrected. And so he's got some, in his mind, important things to teach. Now, 
in a similar way, not saying I'm Jesus at all, I'm going to take the teachings of Jesus, these important things at the close of his life that he thinks important. Here's some three important teachings I think that you also uh, can remedy church, continue in and be uh, continuing on in a good foundation. So starting in verse 15. The Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. This is, again, this is what each section is about. These, these groups of people, Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, lawyers, they don't like him. They're trying to trap him. They come up to try to entangle him in his words, and they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. And it's interesting that they even would bring the Herodians. Uh, they weren't friendly together. The Pharisees and Herodians weren't friendly. If the Pharisees were the theological enemies um, of Jesus, uh, let me say it again. If the Pharisees were the kind of theological enemies, then the political enemies of the Pharisees were the Sadducees and Pharisees were, were theological enemies. Then the Herodians and the Pharisees were um, political enemies, but there's a collaboration of wickedness that they're all trying to get together just to get rid of Jesus. You know, uh, we both have a same enemy. Let's be friends for this moment. It's kind of thing is what's going on with the Herodians. Um, and so here they go even to the Herodians and they, see, they say, teacher, we know that you're true and you teach the way of God truthfully uh, and you don't care about anyone's opinion for you're not swayed by appearances. All this right here is just empty flattery. It's trying to set him up, to butter him up, to, to try to entrap him. Jesus doesn't see it. He's not, he doesn't fall for that stuff. Verse 15, tell us what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, so he sees that it's just empty flattery, overbearing tax burden. The Pharisees were trying to get Jesus to support them by saying, pay taxes, and then the people would dislike Jesus. If Jesus says, yeah, you should pay taxes, well, they're going to dislike Jesus. But he says, don't pay taxes, then the government would just arrest him as an insurrectionist. And so they're trying to trap him to go either way. Uh, And then so he sees their malice and he says, why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him to the nearest and Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, I just find it fascinating. This is just a side note. I've just been thinking about this all week. Isn't it fascinating that we have faces on our coins and 2,000 years, they still had artists that could do that? I just, how? Anyway, um, so anyway, uh, they said Caesar's and he said to them, here it is. Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and the things to God that are God's. Mic drop. That's mic drop. We don't even know that's mic drop if we don't know the Bible well, but that's mic drop. And they heard, because here's why. They heard it, they marveled, and they just left and went away. Like, oh man, I don't even know how to answer that. So the, uh, the truth that I want you to see is that particular verse there in 21, which is what I'm going to center in on as the key text of why he, he the, they're trying to entrap him, but he gives a teaching on kingdom life. And it's right there in 21. Render to Caesar the thing that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. So um, closing thought number one from a pastor that loves you deeply is this. They won't be on the screen. Just, you can write them down if you want. Just listen. Um, Live as good citizens, both of the state and of the kingdom of heaven. That's what, he's talking about taxes, but he really just means in general, there's a government around you. Whenever you have to live in accordance to the government, do it. But also render to God the things that are God's. Not just money, but in everything. Live as a good citizen of the state. Live as a good citizen of the kingdom. There's two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of heaven and this kingdom that you live in. And you got to figure out how to, how to live in, against, in both of them. And so that's teaching number one. Um, closing thought number one for you. Live 
for the rest of your life on earth as a good citizen of the state and a good citizen of heaven. Now I'm going to talk about what that means because that's, that's open-ended, FUD. What the world does that mean? Um, let me tell you what it means. But, so Jesus tells them that while you're living here, the state's going to have some power, but also whatever, whatever country you live in, you know, this is Rome, but whatever country you live in for every Christian, the state's going to have some power, but don't ever forget that God's on his throne and he rules and reigns over everything. And if that's the case, you cannot <clears throat> love earth more than heaven because ultimately, as Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 says, our citizenship is in heaven and from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so our main citizenship is in heaven and we still have to live as a good citizen of heaven, but we still live here. We're not even there yet. We've never been there. We live here, and so we have to be good citizens of both. And so what does that mean? That means ultimately you're always living for two days. Uh, and they can, they can interchange. You're living for t- two days. The first day you're living for is right now, the day you're in. And the day you're in, you want to be a good citizen, and you want to live for Jesus in this day. But you're also living for that day, this day and that day. It's the only two days you're ever living for ever. This day and that day. And this day, you know, tomorrow will be this day again. This day and that day, that day is when Jesus comes. And when he finds us, over and over, all the parables tell us, when he finds us, when he comes on the second coming, unless we go home before, before that, we should be living for Christ. And he tells us, there's weeping, and that's the whole point of the 22, uh, 1 through 14, the parable of the wedding feast. People weren't ready, and when he came, they weren't ready. And you know what happens? It says, bind them, foot and cast, and send them to the outer door- darkness. They'll be weeping, gnashing teeth, for many are called but few are chosen. They weren't living in light of Christ's second coming. So we, we're always living for two days, this day and that day. And we do that by living as good citizens of heaven and on earth. And what that means is this. God must, in our hearts, and our minds, and our lives, maintain his rightful dominion and place in our lives. So the way we live as good citizens of heaven and on earth is by doing that. Because remember, at any point, Jesus could have just said, oh, you know what I can do? I can just sweep down and destroy Caesar right now and set up the kingdom. (laughs) Like, I don't need Caesar at all. I can just sweep down, destroy the whole thing, set up the kingdom right now. But instead, he tells his first century hearers and therefore his 21st century hearers and his, if he doesn't come, 31st century hearers or how many ever centuries we're gonna keep going. He tells every one of his Christians this, patiently look forward to the sovereign hand of God to set up his heavenly kingdom in his own time. But while taxes, live, be good citizens, but live for the coming kingdom. So let's, talk, let's take those one at a time. Good citizen of the state. What does it mean for you? Not at all. Citizen of the state. It certainly doesn't mean that the state is more important than the church. Not at all. But you live here. I live here. We live here. And so since that's the case, God wants us to live as a good citizen. Now, uh, we could go to 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17. I'm going to go to Romans 13, 1 through 7. Both of them are similar. Paul and Peter both tell us, and just remember, as I read this, they were in Rome. <laughs> it wasn't fun to live under Roman oppression. So if we think America's bad, and we should do whatever we want as not being a good citizen of the state, just remember, as he writes these words, he's writing it under Roman oppression. We haven't had that in America. And this is what he says, as a Roman, under Roman oppression, he says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Every government has been instituted by God. Further, 
Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. You resist your government, you resist what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. Now, Paul's writing this under Roman, and he's saying, I, I, I shouldn't try to over and topple Rome. We don't have it as bad as that. So keep going. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to, ba- but to bad conduct. Um, would you have no fear of the one who's an authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For God, you are God's servant for, for good. But if you're wrong, be afraid. For he who does not bear the sword in vain, the, the government doesn't bear the right to put to death its citizens by breaking their laws in vain. God has given each government the sword uh, on purpose. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Those that break laws that deserve death, the, the, the government brings these about and he's doing it under the will of God. Verse five, therefore one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of you, you must also pay your taxes for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Now, don't pay more than what you're supposed to unless you just want to. That's up to you. But pay what you're supposed to. Don't shortchange the government. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. So in that, we can see that we are, therefore, as Christians, to be good citizens by obeying the speed limits. Sometimes that's hard for y'all, but we're supposed to obey the speed limits. We're also, not just that, we pay our taxes honestly. We vote in our elections. We support, and I want to say this really carefully, we support all public endeavors that help all people of all the city flourish. Well, does God want me to do this? Does everybody, every citizen flourish under this? It's probably good. If, is every citizen not flourish under this? It's probably not good. You can decide whether you agree with those things and you can have discussions on whether you think that. But the truth is, is that that's, that's a biblical ethic to think about uh, whether you should support things of the state. Do all people of this city flourish under this? We want to speak well of our rulers. We want to pray for them as much as we possibly can and speak well of them as much as we possibly can. As Christians, we want to be good citizens by also, when appropriate, speaking up and verbally uh, opposing our state when it strays away from its legitimate God-given functions or violates the, mor- violates the moral laws of God. It's okay to speak up. We're allowed to in our country to be able to do that. And I'm not saying topple it. I'm saying speak against the things that are wrong, that go against the moral teachings of the Lord God. Each one of us might know that's supposed to look in our governments, and that's okay. That's okay that we disagree. That's when learning how to speak to each other is super important. Believers and unbelievers should learn how to look at each other and disagree with each other face-to-face in a way that still maintains the humanity of the other person. Every person's made in the image of God. Every person. You are and the person you might disagree with is made in the image of God. Therefore, learn how to disagree in a way that, that glorifies the Lord with each other. And I'll just, I'll say this for the last time. Therefore, social media does not accomplish that ever. Delete all your social media right now. Just delete it while I'm talking. Delete it all and never use it again. Because you can't do, you can't do that. On, you cannot do that on social media. It's impossible. You will not uphold the humanity of other people arguing on Facebook or I don't even have it, whatever you use. So delete it all. And then you can actually appreciate the humanity of each other. That's, not, that's, that's an extra law. It's not in the Bible. That's just my personal thing. If you don't, you're not sinning against God, just me, and that's not a big deal. So, um, but my, my advice is delete it all. So anyway, back to this point is um, things that are wrong. L- speak about these things with people that, that are, uh, 
in a way that upholds their humanity. That's a good citizen of state, but also be a good citizen of heaven. As already noted, Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 says, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Which means we don't just live for this day and live in this world in this particular time, but we live for that day because we will one day live in that kingdom. Uh, and so since that's the case, we need to glorify Jesus with everything. Now, I have two ways that I think, this is still all in a number one, be a good citizen of heaven and earth. I have two ways that I think that we can live as a good citizen of heaven. You can come up with two more. We could come up with 20. I just have two. And I think these two are good. I think these two are super important. Um, and so let me tell you these two ways to live under citizen. So if we're saying be a good citizen of heaven, I've talked about citizen of, of earth. Now I'm going to talk about citizen of heaven. And under that little right there, there's two ways to do it. There's two ways. These are just mine. You could pick yours. There's a billion. Number one, live a life of repentance. I think being a good citizen of heaven means that we as believers live a life of ongoing repentance. Be the first to repent. Be the first to repent. Be quick to listen to someone correcting you and eager to have a soft heart to repent and receive the forgiveness that Jesus offers to believers in Christ. This is what Christ wants from us. He wants us to be the kind of people that are eager to repent. Soft hearts towards repentance. I think to be a good citizen of heaven is to live a life of repentance. One pastor, uh, he, in his church, they have a church mantra. He's actually even retired now. He's not even there anymore. But his church mantra at the time when he was there was this. It's a little three-part mantra. I think it's pretty funny, but also pretty memorable and pretty good. And he said, this is, this is our church mantra. And this, it's, it's so gospelicious. It's so good. And it's, I think it's, it's uh, helping us understand a life of repentance. Number one, I'm a complete idiot. I am a complete idiot. Number two, my future is incredibly bright. Like how, how do those two things go together? I'm explaining. And number three, anybody can get in on this. That's their church mantra. Number one, I'm a complete idiot, as in I'm a, I'm a, I'm a wretched, wretched, wretched sinner. And almost everything I do, well, everything I do outside of Christ and even in Christ, a lot of the things I do are sinful and dreadful and terrible. I'm a complete idiot. But number two, my future is incredibly bright. How is that? Jesus, because Jesus died on the cross, has forgiven me for all of my sin. He lived a perfect life for me. Therefore, I can be imputed that. He took my punishment. I'm forgiven. My future's looking pretty good now. My future, I'm a complete it, but my can get in on this. Trust in Christ. That's the ongoing life of repentance. That's the power that's putting on display the power of the gospel of our lives is living a life of ongoing repentance. Now that third one, anybody can get on this, points me to my second one. So living a good citizen of heaven is living a life of repentance. It's also this. Being a good citizen of heaven means this. Fulfill the great commission. Like really fulfill the great commission. This is what I mean. I don't mean to step on toes, but I know it's my little. Stop assuming that one day in the future, you're finally going to be mature enough to really start sharing the gospel with the lost people around you. Finally, when the church really gets together that outreach Saturday, next fall or the fall after, then you'll finally go, start going and sharing the gospel. Um, don't uh, keep putting it off into the future. Stop being scared of people. Stop making excuses but actually start sharing the gospel because 
One day you're going to be in your 50s or they're in your 60s or in your 70s and you're going to look back at the 30s, 40s and whatever when you kept making excuses of why you never did it because you were scared or you didn't want people to think you're weird or whatever and you're going to look back in your 70s and you're going to regret that you never actually started fulfilling the Great Commission. So fulfill the Great Commission and stop making excuses of why you never evangelize. It's time. It's time to start telling people about Jesus and that's how you be a good citizen of heaven, is make other citizens of heaven by telling them the good news of Jesus. So being a good citizen of heaven is living a life of repentance and start fulfilling the Great Commission. And maybe if you're not fulfilling the Great Commission, you need to repent of that so that you'll start. Um, So that's being a good citizen of heaven. So I want to bring all this point number one, this closing thought to a, a close by reading this particular text from 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Um, Jonathan Edwards in his farewell sermon, this was actually his main text. Uh, you should download it or Google it or whatever. Uh, you can read his, his farewell text. He was there 23 years and they just told him he had to leave because uh, they didn't like his theology and he was right and they were wrong, but he left anyway. And his farewell sermon was Second Corinthians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. And so I want to close my section off because what he's saying here is really good. He's, he's talking and quoting Paul from Corinthians, and Paul is telling the Corinthians, like, I may never see you again, but one day, whenever we see each other in heaven, we're going to boast about what God's done. And so I want to close up this be a good citizen of heaven, be a good citizen of earth by reading this text. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. And so as we both continue on in life to to be good citizens of heaven and of earth, we'll see each other, hopefully. But if we never see each other, we will see each other again in heaven. And both of us are going to stand before each other as brothers and sisters in Christ and boast of what Christ, we won't boast of remedy church per se, we'll boast of what Christ has done in our lives to God be the glory forever and ever. And so until then, until that day where we get to do that, until we see each other in glory or if we see each other next month, um, one day when we stand before Jesus and we boast about each other, until then, live as good citizens of heaven and of of the state and of earth, both here and now, for this day and for that day. Live for both days and be a good citizen of the state and of the kingdom. That's closing thought number one. Closing thought number two, Sadducees came up. So we've talked about the Pharisees and the Sadducees. One thing that you should know, he tells us right there in the text, the same day the Sadducees came to him, and there it is, who say there is no resurrection. Um, If you want to remember this, Seminary 101 taught me this. This is so cheesy, but I say it all the time. Uh, The Pharisees believe in the afterlife, and that's fair, you see. But the Sadducees don't believe in the afterlife, and that's sad. You see, my, my kids have heard that so many times. But it's the way you remember it. When you see in the Bible how Pharisees and Sadducees, that's one of the reasons they didn't like each other. And that's one of the key things. The Sadducees believe when you die, it's annihilationism. Like when you die, eternal dirt nap, nothing ever happens after that. You don't have any consciousness afterwards. It's just, it's just all over. Wrong. It's just totally wrong. But they're coming up because they think, oh, we've got Jesus. We've got him. We've got him. Because there was a law in the Old Testament that if um, a man marries a woman and they marry each other, but they don't have any children, then his next, if next brother has to marry her. But if they don't have any children, then the next brother has to marry her. And until they have a child so that, you know, that first brother could have, you know, some ongoing offspring. And so like, oh, we got it. What if there's like seven brothers 
and they never have a child, and then they go into heaven where, because they don't believe in the resurrection, they go into heaven, and then all of a sudden, you've got these people in heaven where these seven guys are married to this one woman. Well, who's she going to be married to in heaven? She had seven husbands. Ah, uh, got him. We got, we got Jesus on that. We got him. This lady who had seven husbands, and she's only supposed to have one in heaven. We got him. So that's the, that's, that's the premise of their question. Now, obviously, Jesus is smarter than them, and he's going to make them look silly. The, the same day Sadducees came to him who said there's no resurrection, and they asked him a question saying, Teacher, uh, Moses said if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up the offspring for his brother. That's the law I just talked about in the Old Testament. So now tell us, there were seven brothers among us that first married and died, having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and the third, all the way down to the seventh. So they all, they all died. And then the woman kept going, and then all that, then the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of all the seven brothers, whose wife will she be? For they all had her, you know, as a, as a wife. But Jesus answered them, you're all wrong. Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. For as the resurrection of the dead... Um, for as for the resurrection for the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? And now he's got to quote uh, Exodus 3, 6 right here. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. They're like, oh man, we don't understand. So let's, let's explain to it, and I'll get to my second clo- closing. So the Sadducees come to him, and they're like, we got him. And they're asking this, this one guy we know, he... He, uh, he married this lady. He died, the next brother. Uh, I think the Sadducees are asking the wrong question about you know, each brother. The better question is, what's this crazy woman doing to this men, right? Why, why are they all dying? But that's just you know, my weird brain. So uh, they're carrying these, preposi- these presuppositions that aren't good, right? Number one, um, they're thinking that resurrection life is like this counterpart to earthly life. The things that we do in earth must be exactly like they are in heaven. no. Just because you're married here on earth doesn't mean you're going to be married there. That's not exactly true. They also, since they think the, res- the resurrection is absurd, they're trying to prove that this incestuous woman in the afterlife is going to have like seven brothers. And so uh, it's all, can't be, it just can't be. This all sounds wrong. And so Jesus, which is, hey, the main reason. So they're trying to trap him, but he gives him a teaching on kingdom life, which is, hey, Sadducees, you don't know the Bible. You don't know the Bible. That's your problem. You know the Bible. Look at it, verse 29. Jesus answered them, you're wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. You don't know the, you don't know the scriptures. They, they bring up Moses and he quotes Exodus chapter 3, verse 6 when he mentions Moses. And he basically just says, you know, you're mentioning Moses. You know, when Moses said this, that he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they had lived and they had died. But Moses, in that, clearly, maybe it's implicit, but even explicitly thinks, you know what? They lived and they died, but I still think they're alive. I still think they're alive. So if he thinks they're alive, guess what that means? There's a resurrection. There's life afterwards. And Jesus, just to mess with them, I love you. This is funny because they don't, not only do they not believe in resurrection, they don't believe in angels. And so that's why he tells them uh, in verse 39, from the resurrection, they'll be never, uh, neither married. Let's read this. They'll, neither marry nor be given in marriage, they'll be just like the angels in heaven. He knows they don't believe in angels and he's just messing with them. It'll be just like the angels, which you don't believe in, but they exist also. So it be like that. We won't be angels, but we'll be like that in that sense and that there's no more children 
heaven. Uh, this is not the point of the passage, though. Not the point. Of, the point of the passage is to get married and like, hey, it's gonna be weird, Christy. Like when we get to heaven, we're not married anymore. It's gonna be like weird, and my kids won't be my kids, but they'll just be like brothers and sisters in Christ. It's gonna. It's, it's weird to think about, right? Um, it's really weird. Like, but that's not the point of the passage. The point of the passage is, hey, guess what? You don't know your Bible, and not only that. Not only do you not know your Bible, look at this, nor the power of God. Listen, Sadducees, if God can create ex nihilo, if there's literally nothing and he just decides something, boom, and the whole thing exists, if he has that much power, I'm pretty sure the power of God can also make us come back to life if that's what he wants. Like, you don't know your Bible and you don't understand God. You don't even understand God at all. So, let's get back to the main point here, the the, the kingdom life teaching that he gives them is understand the word, live on the word, trust in the authority of the scripture, let it be your actual guide because you're going to have all these questions, but you need the Bible. And if you don't have the Bible, your life is going to be messed up. So that brings me to me, closing thought from a pastor that loves you deeply, which is this, live dependent on the word of God every day. Live dependent on the word of God every day. Be a good citizen of the state and of, of heaven, but also every day you and I should live dependent on the word of God every day. We should really believe that the scriptures are the things that give life. So um, we, can, we can enjoy the jab that he gives them and the dig that Jesus gives them and he puts them in their places. Haven't you read the scriptures that was said to you by God because they prided themselves on knowing the scriptures. But I could just shorten it and make it personal for all of us here at Remedy and just say, haven't you read? Because the stats are in on the North American church and maybe Remedy is the anomaly and I pray that's the case. But the North American church doesn't read the Bible. Hardly ever. We don't really depend on the word of God. So that's why I say, number two, live dependent on the word of God completely. Trust completely in the sufficiency and the authority of the word. And you say, I do trust in the authority of scripture. What are you talking about? I know it's from God. Well, the Bible tells us to read the Bible. (laughs) And so if you trust in the authority of the scripture and it tells you to read the Bible and you don't read the Bible, then you, you see where I'm going? You don't trust the authority of the Bible. Trust in the authority of the Bible. Put this on display, not for anybody else, but yourself by reading the Bible and having the Bible be the only source of, because it is the only source of life for you. As it says in John chapter five, verse 37 or 38 or 39, something like that, where Jesus says, you search the scriptures thinking that in they can find life, but they testify about me. The whole Bible's about Jesus. So have you not read? The stats are devastating for Christians in North America that they don't read the Bible. We are entertaining ourselves to death and doing just about anything else other than reading our Bibles. So my plea for you, my second closing piece of uh, loving um, edification for you is this, that you would trust in the authority of the scriptures and moreover, by, uh, because you do, you would actually read the Bible every day. Second Timothy chapter 3 verse 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God. Breathed out by God. Theo, God, neustos, breathed out. 
the scriptures have literally been breathed out. This is intentionally Genesis chapter one and two centric. You know, God took the dust of the of of this uh, ground and breathed life into it and created a man, and it gave him life. In a similar way, the word of God has been theonoustos, breathed out to us. And in the same way that he gave man life by breathing into him, the Bible gives us spiritual life by listening and reading to it. All scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable for, it does this, it's profitable for teaching. You want to know how to live. You want to understand the, the things of God. The Bible does this. Look at John chapter 14 and chapter 16 on the Holy Spirit's work on teaching us. The, the Bible's profitable for teaching. This can be tough. The Bible's profitable for reproof and correction. Now, I'm just like you. I can't stand reproof and correction. <laughs> no one likes reproof and correction. But go back up to being a good citizen of heaven. Point number one, be quick to repent. Be quick to repent. And so reproof and correction, I should have a soft heart towards. The Bible will do this for you. The Bible does this. And for training in righteousness. You and I, if we're believers, justification, we have been declared righteous in Christ Jesus. Sanctification, we're now walking out that righteousness. The Bible helps you walk out that righteousness. It trains you in righteousness. It helps you actually in your sanctification. So trains you in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. The Bible helps us come to spiritual completion. And it literally says, trained for every good work. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10. We all have been predestined to do good works. That's what Ephesians 2:10 says. Every single one of us has been predestined to do good works just that we would walk in them. The Bible helps you and equips you to do those predestined good works that Ephesians 2:10 speaks of. Equips you for every good work. The Bible is that good. The Bible says about itself in another place, Psalm 19, verses 10 and 11, I don't know, two months ago when we were preaching in Psalm 19, this is what it says about itself. Um, it's, it refers to itself in the Old Testament as the law or the teachings or the precepts, etc. It says this, more to be, the Bible is more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. All the money in the world, the Bible's better than all the money in the world. Even for, moreover, sweeter than the honey and drippings from the honeycomb. The Bible's better than any food you could ever have. This is where it gets even awesome. Moreover, by it, your servant is warned. The Bible helps us and guides us into Christ-likeness and away from uh, sin. And this is maybe in following the word, there is great reward. That's amazing. There's great reward in following the scriptures and knowing the scriptures. So, since this is the case, don't stop believing this. There's no other source of authority besides the word. God speaks to us in no other way other than the word. The word of God is our life. Read it, believe it, let it dominate your life. Know it, study it, meditate on it. Don't stray away from it. Let it show you Jesus. Let it show you his magnificence. Let it show you his glory. Let it show you his love for you. Let it show you his mercy and what he's done for you on the cross, but also in the resurrection where he took the punishment, but also gives us life because he defeated Satan, sin, and death. So read the word. For elders, for Chris is in here, so or any prospective elders one day, if you keep reading that same text, it tells you this. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who's to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. 
since the word does all these things, you should read the Bible, you know, Sunday to Sunday to Sunday to Sunday. But there's also a special thing, which is what I'm doing. Administer the word on Sundays. And elders are to preach the word. Be in, ready in season and out of season. In season, out, preach the word when everybody loves what you're saying. Preach the word when everybody doesn't like what you're saying. <laughs> preach the word. There's going to be both seasons. And then it goes on to say, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. Because here's what's going to happen one day. May this never happen to remedy, but it's going to happen. And we could point to places where it's already happening. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears, or just, just, you know, I don't like what you're saying. I want to hear something I like to hear. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Give me the teachers that make me feel good. That's why we preach the word out of season. And they'll turn away from listening to the truth, the wonder off in the myths. As you always have, be sober-minded, endure suffering, and do the work of the evangelist. So elders, um, continue to hold up the word of God by preaching the word so that we, the church, believe it's the only place that we can have life. Live dependent on the word of God by actually having the Bible present every day in your life. There's no other place you can find life. God gives us good gifts like spouses and the church and worship songs and all these other things, which are fine. They're fine. They're great. I love them. But life is in the word. This is how God speaks to us, is in his word. Now I want to close point number two with this particular text. As I closed point number one with 2 Corinthians, I want to close point number two with um, 1 Thessalonians. Chapter 2, verse 13. Paul's speaking to the Thessalonians. And as he's speaking to the Thessalonians, he makes this interesting comment on how they were ready to receive the word of God. And we should have these kind of hearts. We want hearts like the Thessalonians when it comes to the Bible. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of man, but what it really is, the word of God. And here it is, which is at work in you believers. If you are reading the Bible, it will be at work in your heart. We all want that. <laughs> Just, we all want the Bible to be at work in our hearts. So read the Bible every day because he's telling us it will be at work in our hearts. Let that be true of Remedy Church. Closing thought number two, um, totally depend on the word of God completely. Number three, looking at verse 34 through, 30, uh, through 40. This one's pretty get, easy to guess out, but you can look at it. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. So we're going to take a shot. Bad idea. And they came to him, a lawyer here. So they brought a lawyer, a specialist in the law of God to ask a question, to test him. Teacher, what's the greatest commandment of the law? So you got the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. What's the most important one of all of them? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Uh, heart, soul, let's read that again. With all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And this is the first and greatest commandment. And the second one's just like it. You shall love the neighbor, your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments depend all the law and all the prophets. So it's pretty simple to guess what number three is. Number one, be a good citizen of state and heaven. Number two, completely depend on the word of God. Number three, love God 
and love other people deeply. Now I'm gonna talk about what each one of those look like, but love God and love other people deeply. Now the Pharisees, just remember the Pharisees and Sadducees didn't like each other, so they saw the Sadducees get their tail handed to them. They're kind of peacocking around, and they're thinking, oh, we're going to get him. They couldn't get him, but we can, so we're going to send our little specialist, our, our lawyer, and he's going to go in them and ask him, what's the, what's the most important one of the Ten Commandments? Now, the Ten Commandments, if you know anything about them, uh, they're kind of two parts. You've got the first four commandments that are about God, you know, don't have any other idols, down to keep the Sabbath, and then you've got number five through number ten. Number five, uh, obey your parents, and number 10, don't covet. So, and all in between. And those, they're, they're really two parts. Numbers one through four are how you deal with God. That's it. You know, don't have, don't take the Lord's name in vain, keep the Sabbath, etc. Like, they're all about God. Five through 10 are how you deal with fellow men. You know, don't cheat on their wife, don't covet their stuff, don't kill them, you know, those kinds of things, important stuff. Um, and so Jesus just takes the 10 commandments and says, okay, you want to know the most important? Number four here is love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. If you do that, you'll keep all four. Here's the other one. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you do that, you'll keep five through ten. It's that simple. And so what do they do? They're like, uh, uh, we, okay, we're gonna go. So that, I mean, that's, that's basically all that they can do. Um, and so he's talking to the Pharisees, and the Pharisees love the laws. I mean, they're all about the laws. If you re- know anything about the Pharisees, like Jesus gets all over them because they add laws to laws for extra laws and then some more laws just to have laws. And so they, they love laws, and they, they had them great and small, light and heavy. They referred to, the, this joke didn't work in the first service, but I'm trying to try it again. They referred to <laughs> Deuteronomy as heavy D. That's why they said they had nothing but love for God. Nobody? Heavy D? Nothing but love? Okay. All right. I wrote, the 80s rap jokes don't work, but, you know, whatever. I tried it anyway. All right, so anyway, back to the point. So here, here we see here, in closing thought number three, from a pastor that loves you deeply, love God and love your neighbor deeply. Love God. What do I mean by love God? He tells us here to love God this way, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. With all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind with all your heart, with all your affections, with all your feelings. Some of you aren't emotional, some of you are. It's the, it's the subjective nature of the way that God has created us. And we are to love him with all of our subjective, emoting feelings. So we're to love God with all of our heart and with all of your soul. We're to love God with all of our soul. This is with all of our life too, like the things we do. We are constantly in an ongoing decision-making process, and then we're going to do something with that decision. Everything we do, not just with our emotions, but everything we actually do, every action we take, we're to love God with it. And we're to love God with all of our mind, with all of our mind. So not just everything we do, but every thought we think, Second Corinthians 10, 5, take every thought to the obedience of Christ. That's how you're to love God. You're, how can I love God? Love God with all of your emotions, as subjective as that is, and as you know, wired emotionally or not emotionally you are, love God with every single one of them. Love God with every single thing you do and love God with every thought you think. All of that, that's how you're to love God. So when we see this thing told us to love God, D.A. Carson says, true love demands the abandon of self to God. God alone is the adequate incentive for such abandonment. So the way that we Abandon ourself is, to lo- is by loving God. And he is the only proper incentive that can get us to do that. Let you down. You know, the game cost will let you down. And then you'll just go back to yourself. But the only thing that you can actually really abandon self is for God. It's for the Lord. 
He's the only proper incentive. So love God with every single thing inside of you. Okay, here's where it gets hard because I think loving God is pretty easy. Now, obviously on the grand scale, it's like so hard because we can't do it very well. But loving someone who's perfect, that never wrongs you, that died for you, that forgives you of your sin and gave his son to die for you, like those things are pretty awesome things. You're like, okay, like he's easy to love. He's just hard to do it for, but he's really easy. But people, people are not perfect and they will do you wrong and they will hurt you. They are unlike God and it's hard to love people because they're not like God. They, they hurt us and it's hard to forgive them, etc. So don't miss this. This is very important. Love the Lord, Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind. It's the first and greatest commandment. And the second is, hmm, See the words? Two, two words there. And the second is like it. The second is like it. Consider the level of love with all of our thoughts. That level of love. And the second is like it. The level of love we're being asked to put towards God. Like it. Love your neighbor. That's hard. Consider with me this level of love that Jesus is asking us to give to our neighbor. Because it's supposed to be the same level of love we're supposed to have for God. I think that that level of love for God, we're all shooting for it. It, it, it's It's not, you know, hitting 100%, but we want it to. And he's telling us, and I think this is more of a challenge. That's why Jesus says, like it, and you should love others. And as I said, on one level, it's easy to love God because he's perfect, never does us wrong. He's never hurt us before. He died for us. He gives us life, et cetera. And all that makes it easy to love. And on the other side, people are not perfect. They do us wrong constantly. They hurt us all the time. And I think that it's unmistakable that the word like it is still there. Love your neighbors with the same love that you're supposed to love the Lord. God wants us to love others um, in the same way that we're supposed to love him. And you could say, well, then who's my neighbor? Well, in Luke, he tells us that. Somebody comes up to him and asks him, who's my neighbor? And he tells him in who our neighbor is. We're supposed to love our neighbor no matter what. In Luke chapter 10, verse 29, a Pharisee comes up and says, who is my neighbor? And in the larger context of surrounding that particular 1029, who's my neighbor? The larger context is Luke chapter 10, 25 through 37, and it's the story of the Good Samaritan. If you know, Jews and, and Samaritans hated each other. They couldn't stand each other. And what does a Samaritan do? Well, your neighbor is not just your friend. It's, you're supposed to love them to the same level you love God, and your neighbor is not just your friend. Your neighbor is the person that may also not be your friend. Whether you know them or not, they may also not be your friend. And it's someone that Jesus wants you to be just like Jesus towards. As hard as that might be, love of neighbor means loving the people that are difficult to love. To what degree does that look like? Well, here, if you look at the story, it means that you would go to them. By love of neighbor, you would go to, you know the story of the Good Samaritan. I don't have to read it for you, but it just means this, that you would go to them and you would bind up their wounds. You would bind up their hurts. You'd take them to the inn, and when you take them to the inn, you would take care of them on your own expense. You'll cover all their expenses that it is to stay in that inn while they get well. And you tell the owner of the inn, while I'm gone, if you have any more expenses by taking care of this person, you let me know and I'll cover that too. That's what love a neighbor is. Like it, we're supposed to love every other person 
That's how you love your neighbor, in the same way that we love God. Edwards has this thing called the rules of the gospel, and it's just basically how to love your neighbor. He says it this way. Um, In many cases, we may, by the rules of the gospel, be obliged to give to others when we cannot do it without suffering ourselves. And it's e- the whole point is, like, it's easy to take care of people when it doesn't really cost you anything. You know, if you got a bazillion dollars and they need three bucks and you give it to them, now you have bazillion minus three. And you're like, well, it's no big deal at all. But if you have, like, three bucks and they need three bucks, then it hurts, right? Because now you get no money for beans um, or whatever it is you eat. Uh, and so the whole point is, if our neighbor's difficulties and necessities be much greater than our own, and we see that he is not likely to be otherwise relieved, we should be willing to go suffer with him. And if we never oblige to ourselves, how else is that rule of bearing one another's burdens fulfilled? If we never oblige to relieve others' burdens, but when we can do it without burdening ourselves, then how do we bear our neighbor's burdens at all when we bear no burden at all? In other words, if, it's, if you're not really taking on a burden to help somebody, you're not bearing their burden. If it's like no big deal, like I, I, I got plenty to take care of this, and I got even more. And that's all I'm going to do, though. You're not, that's the rules of the gospel. He's like, you're not necessarily following in it. And so the third commandment, love God and love your neighbor. Remedy Church, my last little closing thing is love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor. Bind up their wounds. Take care of them no matter what it costs. That's how you love your neighbor. And I, I would say it this way because look what it says in verse 40. This is, tr- this is important. On these two commandments, depend all the law and prophets. What's that saying? D.A. Carson says it this way, and I'm going to explain what he says. Nothing in Scripture can cohere or be truly observed unless these two are observed. In other words, if we say we believe all this stuff about Jesus and what he's done in our lives and, what we, what, and how great it is to be forgiven, if we say we believe, then all that we say we believe is just hogwash. It depends on these things. The way that we really believe those things is by actually loving God and loving our neighbor or else you don't really believe all that stuff. These commandments depend the law and the prophets. Nothing in scripture can cohere or truly be observed unless these two are observed. You can't truly do all, say you believe all these things unless you're actually loving God and loving your neighbor. That's how you show, not to other people, to the Lord that he really is your treasure. So let's conclude. How do you do those three things? Because they're hard. Being a good state, uh, citizen of the state and of, of heaven, depending on the word of God every single day, loving your neighbor and loving others. How do you do those things? Because they're hard. Well, the good news is, the answer is Jesus. Jesus has done these things perfectly for us and therefore, since he has kept the law, the law has been impu- his righteousness has been imputed onto us, into us. We've been given the Holy Spirit, and now we can walk in glad obedience to these things because of Jesus. And I think this is what we see here. Now the Pharisees were gathered together. Look at verse forty-one. They've been asking their questions. Jesus, is like, oh, my turn for a question. I got a question, and he baffles them, and then they don't ever ask anymore. Verse forty-one. The Pharisees were gathered together. Jesus asked them a question. Awesome. Uh, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? I mean, just gets right at the heart of it all. He doesn't talk about, you know, dinosaurs or, you know, whatever. Like, get off into other stuff. Right to the question. What do you think about the Messiah? Who is he? Whose son is he? And they said, the son of David. That's the pat, pharisaical, like, good Sunday school, good job answer. He knew he was going to say that. And he said, okay. 
if he's the son of David, how is it that David, in the spirit, like he wrote this while he was, he said this while he's writing the Bible, says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your, fin- your enemies under my feet. Now, Chris unpacked this last time where David is clearly saying, there's one that comes from me and I'm calling him Lord, which means even though he's a far descendant of me, he's the Messiah. And so David, which they love, they love David. Everybody loves David. If David says Jesus is the Messiah, then Jesus is like, that's right, I am the Messiah. That's the point that he's getting to. And when they said, if David calls him Lord, how is he a son? If, if he's a son, I would never call Aiden Lord. <laughs> you know, he can call me Lord. And yes, sir. But he's not going to look at me and call me Lord. But he's saying, why is David calling Jesus Lord? Or the Messiah, obviously we think it's Jesus. Not from that day to anyone dare to ask any more questions. Baffled. They don't have any answer. Because the point that he's making is, I'm the Messiah. David calls me Lord. I'm the Messiah, which brings us to this. That's how then you want to know like how it is that you can do any of these things because Jesus is our Lord. Jesus is our Lord. He's the only way we can do this to be a good citizen of heaven and earth, to depend on the word of God every every day, to love God and love our neighbor as we ought. All this is actually and only made available to us in Jesus. It's in Jesus. He has done these things perfectly in our place. And now we have the power to walk obediently in them. So don't get overwhelmed by thinking, man, that's a lot of stuff. You can do it in Christ. And so they've learned their lesson and they go home. And he's told them these things to give them kingdom teachings. And I think this is a good continuing foundation for Remedy Church to go on is by having these three things in their life. So let's pray that these things would happen in Remedy Church. Let's pray. God, I pray for Remedy. I love them so much and I pray that they would be good citizens of heaven and of earth and that you would equip them and empower, empower them to live that out and that they would be quick to repent, quick to share the gospel um, and would seek flourishing of all the people. Lord, I also pray that you would help them love the word of God. It's so hard sometimes and dry spells to want to be in the word, but I pray that you would give them the deep desire to want to be in the word every day because it's their only source of life. And Lord, I pray that they would love God and love others to the same degree that we're called to love you, that we would love our neighbor, binding up their wounds, paying for uh, their needs out of our own expense, putting on display that we actually love our neighbors. So Lord, be with Remedy Church, equip Remedy Church, bless Remedy Church, use Remedy Church, and may the furthering of your kingdom happen through them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.